It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, a veritable feast for the ears of our favorite stories from across the week, I'm Richard Cockett, a senior editor, and coming up, has the internet failed? We asked Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the World Wide Web. Former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright on how America's relationship with post-Soviet Russia turned sour, and the urban gardens blooming in the big smoke. But episode one, as it were, is our cover story. Does that sound familiar? If it does, it probably means you're a customer of the tech giant everyone is watching. It's time for a lesson in Netflixonomics. Since its founding in 1997, the company has morphed from a DVD rental service to a streaming video upstart to the world's first global TV powerhouse. This year, its entertainment output will far exceed that of any TV network. Its production of over 80 feature films is far larger than any Hollywood studios. Around the world, square-eyed legions are glued to their screens. The 125 million households the company serves, twice as many as it has in 2014, watch Netflix for more than two hours a day on average, eating up a fifth of the world's downstream internet bandwidth. China is the one big market where it is not allowed to operate. Netflix now has more subscribers outside America than inside it. From Mexico to India, people stream narcos and stranger things in a planet-wide community of binge-watchers. Most other media firms have a lot of catching up to do. It makes expert use of data, categorising individual users' preferences into about 2,000 taste clusters to serve up different shows to different users, including within the same family via targeted recommendations. And so far, Netflix has managed to avoid the tech clash. Unlike Facebook and Google, Netflix has steered clear of news and mostly stuck to entertainment. That has protected it from scandals over fake news, electoral manipulation and political tribalism. And unlike those two ad-based platforms, its subscription-based business model means that the firm does not rely on selling users' data or attention to outsiders. But will it be happily ever after? To justify its current valuation, Netflix's gross operating profits in a decade's time would have to be equivalent to about half of all the profits made by American entertainment firms this year. If Jesus were a stock, he'd be Netflix, one savvy investor is said to have observed. You either believe or you don't. To find out whether that faith is justified, read the briefing in this week's edition of The Economist. Of course, Netflix miracle could never have happened without the internet, which is the subject of this week's special report. Internet pioneers dreamed of a free, shared space that would connect the whole world. 
But today, centralized monopolies are quite the opposite. Ludwig Siegler, our technology editor, came on our Babbage podcast to explain. Think of Google not as a search engine. Think of Google as a big database keeping track of what's out there on the internet and what people have searched, and so they, it can optimize its search result. Think of Facebook not necessarily as, as a social medium, but as a database that keeps track of who you know, what you have shared with uh, your friends, what pictures you've uploaded. So Ludwig went to visit Tim Berners-Lee, inventor of the World Wide Web, and plucked up the courage to ask him, has the internet failed? Well, I wouldn't say that the internet has failed with a capital F, but I would say that it has failed to deliver the positive, constructive society that many of us originally had hoped for. Could blockchain be the solution? To find out more, pick up a copy of this week's Economist. It's available from all good newsstands or by subscription. Just go to economist.com slash radio offer to get your first 12 copies for $12 or £12. As part of our anniversary open future season, our latest guest on The Economist Asks was Madeleine Albright. As a child in Czechoslovakia, her family fled first the Nazis and then the communists, seeking asylum in America. She was the first woman to be America's Secretary of State in the hopeful years after the end of the Cold War. So we asked her, how did America's relationship with Russia turn sour? I think the U.S. You know, made a mistake when we said we won the Cold War. The bottom line is they lost the Cold War. Communism failed. And I think that what should have happened to those countries that were in the Soviet satellite system against their will uh, when the Soviet Union disintegrated. So I happen to think we did the right thing, and we did respect and try to work with Russia. The problem is that Putin um, is operating off of trying to, you know, he has to remember that he's not Peter the Great. And you can hear the rest of that interview by heading to economist.com slash open future. In the past few days, nearly 10 million young Chinese have received their results from the world's largest and most important school exam, known as the Gaokao. As demand grows to study abroad, more and more foreign universities are accepting students on the basis of their Gaokao results. It's a gruelling test, and successful students must both be bright and work hard. But there's a problem. Our China editor, James Miles, came on the week ahead to explain. It's an exam that is fundamentally at odds with Western liberal values. Part of the point of the exam, indeed officials say, is to choose people who will become good servants of the state. That's what China's deputy prime minister said uh, just a few days ago. And there are politically slanted questions in it that are clearly designed to make sure that people are loyal to the party. It is very odd, it might be said, that um, Western universities accept an exam that require students to um, adapt their answers to fit a certain political orthodoxy. After surviving school and university, the world of work is a grand new adventure. But in many white-collar jobs, there's at least one aspect that is less than exciting, the dreaded meeting. Most workers view the prospect of a two-hour meeting with the same enthusiasm as Prometheus awaited the daily arrival of the eagle sent by the gods to peck at his liver. Meetings have been a form of torture for office staff for as long as they have pushed pencils and bashed keyboards. 
In this week's business section, our columnist on working life, Bartleby, proposed a new fundamental law. After at least 80% of meetings, any decisions taken will be in line with the hippo, or highest paid person's opinion. Fewer than half of the people in a large meeting will bother to speak, and at least half of the attendees will at some point check their phones. Part of the problem is that humans are programmed to hate feeling left out. Nothing is so likely to induce paranoia than a department meeting to which you are not invited. To avoid this fear, managers attempted to invite as many people as might be interested. But there is a better way. Low-status employees should be encouraged to speak, says Mr Schweitzer, and there should be a no-interruption rule so they cannot be intimidated. Furthermore, there is no point in holding a meeting unless everyone knows what has been decided afterwards. But perhaps the best solution to tedious gatherings is to have far fewer of them. Leaving our London office after a particularly gruelling meeting the other day, a journalist from our Britain section happened to look up. The roof of Coots, a posh private bank across the road, was sprouting greenery. Our correspondent went in to investigate. We have four microclimates, Mr Fiore says, as he walks along the thin strip between the troughs in which the produce grows. Warmth from the roof on the south side, he says, adds several degrees to the temperature. Thus, above one of London's busiest streets, guavas, pepino melons and finger limes are grown for client lunches and dinners. It's a particularly ambitious example of a blossoming of urban gardens happening all over London. Several other local rooftops in central London, including those of the Canadian High Commission, the London School of Economics, the National Gallery and the Savoy Hotel, boast rooftop gardens or hives. And more flowers means more bees. And bees, as Winnie the Pooh could have told you, mean at least one thing, honey. London has more than 5,000 hives, says Natalie Cotton of the London Beekeepers Association, ten times the density of the rest of the country. Last year, Coote's hives yielded 12 kilograms of honey. A jar is thought to have found its way to Buckingham Palace, a mile away, as the bee flies. And finally, as London's skyline blossoms, our books and art section took a trip to Chicago, where the skyscraper was born. Mark Twain was dazzled by the Windy City. It is hopeless for the occasional visitor to try to keep up with Chicago, he wrote in 1883. She outgrows his prophecies faster than he can make them. And while the term skyscraper has come to connote New York landmarks, such as the Flatiron, Woolworth and Empire State Buildings, it was first used to describe towers that rose on the shores of Lake Michigan. Take the 200-foot-tall Reliance Building. Construction began in 1890 as part of the great renewal of the city after the devastating fire of 1871. The project had an unusual start. Tenants in the five-storey building that occupied the site on North State Street refused to give up their leases. Work started on the lower floors of the new building while the upper storeys of the old one and their recalcitrant occupants were raised on jack screws until those pesky leases expired. It's a story of how the radical became the everyday. A structure is most successful when it almost seems to disappear. In the same way, the Brooklyn Bridge, the Eiffel Tower and the Lloyds Building were unprecedented achievements which now blend into their landscapes, while the risks taken to build them and the rows over whether they should be built at all vanish into the past. 
That's the end of this week's tasting menu, but there's more where that came from, at economist.com or by subscribing to Economist Radio, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review. It makes all the difference. I'm Richard Cockett. In London, this is The Economist. 